Hi, I'm Jerry House. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories, but you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart. And this podcast is not suitable for children, but then neither is the music business. So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Let's talk about the guys. Let's talk about the fact that I first met Merle Haggard in 1976 at the Opry, and he was one of the best-looking people I've ever seen in my life. Truthfully, I don't think I ever told you this. He was so handsome. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, the pictures of Merle when he was young, he was just dropped dead. He was like a movie star. I remember Tammy talking about Merle Haggard was just He was dead. so handsome and hostile. But nonetheless, <laughs> he was very handsome. And I'll tell you, George told us that the Lefty Frizzell was so good looking that the women would throw their underpants at him during shows. And they would pull on all of his fringe, you know, because he used to wear those Western outfits with the fringe and everything. And he said they'd just tear it off. You know, when, we, when I first came to town, I'm trying to think, you know, Waylon, Willie, Chris, and... Uh, who was the other one? Waylon, Willie, Chris. Johnny. And, and Johnny were all such heavy presence. They were all presences. They were all so bigger than life. And that was the outlaw thing. And you look now and everybody's smaller than life. I mean, there's no larger than life guys anymore. Well, and Waylon was so handsome. Oh, my God. I, what, know, I mean, sorry to talk right about to how the, handsome they all were, but that's what men talk about with women. Oh, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, you know, they were all gorgeous. Well, these guys were drop-dead gorgeous, and, and very naturally. And it's what Susan said. They had such a strong presence. I remember being at the ASCAP dinner one year, and it was out at the Opryland Hotel. And, you know, it was before there was a big money crunch in the music business, so... They had a really uh, huge dinner. I mean, a lot of people. And they always had a room, you know, set aside during the cocktail time for the artist, you know, to have a little bit of privacy. But there'd still be like, you know, hundreds of people in there. And I remember once I had my back to the uh, entrance into this room and I just felt the whole room kind of change and get quiet. And I turned around and Johnny Cash had walked in. The energy changed when he walked in. I mean, you just knew it instantly that there was somebody there that was, you know, a brighter star than all the others. And that's how uh, it felt when, you know, he would walk into an area. And I remember once uh, when I was doing the Highwaymen project, we were out in LA at rehearsals or something. And Waylon and I had a pretty good relationship, and he uh, invited me out to lunch with him and Johnny Cash because I, you know, had rep represented Willie and I represented Chris, but I never worked with Waylon and, and Johnny Cash at that point. And he wanted to kind of get me to know them better and to know me. And we went out to lunch, and it was like just so overwhelming. You know, to be sitting there with Waylon Jennings, who was huge, and Johnny Cash, who was huge, and their whole presence and all the black, you know, jackets and shirts and all of that, and uh, talking. And, Where and did Johnny, you go? 
I don't remember the name of the restaurant, but it was somewhere there around your uh, around the studio. Which studio? Whatever studio we were rehearsing in. I don't remember which studio it was, but we went to a restaurant right in that area. And Johnny Cash, you know, was sitting opposite me. I was sitting next to Waylon, and he said, my friends call me John. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God. The thing is, these guys, not only were they larger than life, but they wrote larger than life songs. Now, Johnny Cash, you know, Folsom Prison Blues and all that stuff, they wrote stuff that people don't write today. There's not one person today that's writing a song about prison. No. There's not. There's not one person that's writing outlaw songs at all. There's none of them. There's not anybody not a, that writes not a ring of fire. Not a ring <laughs> of fire, but that was a different song. But you know, and Christofferson. I mean, such think a, of the songs that Christofferson, Christofferson wrote. Christofferson was you like, can just read them. You don't have to even sing they're them. They're like you poetry, can and you know he he changed the country music business. I and say. there was a good-looking guy. Oh my Chris, God, Christofferson. I mean, he could just. And to this day, if you see him yesterday, you see him tomorrow, he could still make you weak in the knees. He's so he handsome. He could. And in my opinion, just my humble Jewish opinion, Willie was the sexiest one of everybody. And it had to do with Willie's attitude. He made everybody feel so welcome. People weren't as intimidated by Willie as they were by Johnny Cash was just so intimidating because he was larger than life. And... uh Willie was, you know, so kind and funny and generous. And he has a warmth in his eyes, you know, where you can tell it all in the eyes anyhow. And, you know, he would look at you, you know, he looks at you and he talks to you and he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Everybody else kind of disappears and it becomes a very, you know, intimate conversation, you know, in the middle of a crowd. And he doesn't do it on purpose. It's just the way he is. And I remember years ago, in the 70s, I was married to a songwriter and we went to a BMI dinner. And no, a BMI event. And at the event was Willie, who was married to Connie at the time, and Roy Orbison, another one, who was there with Barbara. And I forget, was Waylon there with Jesse? And these guys were so overwhelmingly heavy. That, you know, the room didn't move very much. And everybody not heavy like fat. <laughs> heavy like intense. What? Not heavy like fat. No, no, <laughs> no. It was so heavy with vibes. And you would just look at these people and, you know, they were miraculous because they were what art is. They were truly what art is and what art's supposed to be, which is larger than life. And yet based on life, they were magic. These guys were magic. And, you know, you look around now and there's nobody that's magic in the music business. I don't think. That's just my humble opinion. Nobody that's magical that walks into a room and the room stands still. They were like movie stars and poets and, you know, like the greatest poets that ever lived. And I mean, there are people now, you know, that are, that are such huge stars and that, you know, there's so much money now in the music business. And... You know, it's not unheard of to, you know, get a million dollars a night playing. Uh, and that kind of really skews things in a in a, a strange way. Strange, and materialistic gets, way. And it gets you respect in certain circles because everything is so numbers-oriented. You know, what's your grosses at concerts and how many records do you sell and how many streams do you have? And everything's based on numbers. 
back then it was based on a lot of other kind of factors and and uh i don't think that money was really one of the first things that came to mind you know it was the artistic integrity you know whether the guy was a great lyricist whether he was a great uh you know songwriter uh, what his attitude was. There were so many other factors that went into what, whether somebody was an acclaimed artist versus today you're acclaimed because you have certain success markers, not because, you know. Yeah, music business was, music was magic back then. You know, the stars were bigger than life and the songs, you know, first of all, Johnny Cash was one that went to Europe. And a lot of people today don't go to Europe. And Johnny went to Europe and Willie went to Europe. I don't think Waylon went. And I, I don't, I think maybe Chris went, but they went to Europe and they had international fan bases. And a lot of people today don't go to Europe. Well, they're going now more to Europe, you know, during our heyday, like say the 80s and 90s. Nobody bothered to go, but now young artists are going there because, you know, they're much more sophisticated. They know it's a worldwide market with, you know, being able to access everything online and being much more aware of uh, American artists. So I think it's slightly different, but, you know, it, it, I don't think that, you know, the artists necessarily have, you know, those other qualities that we talked about. You know, Roy Orbison, a person that, you know, uh, was just such an extraordinary writer and, and Yeah, to me, it was just mind-blowing to meet Roy Orbison. First of all, I think he was albino. And uh, he dyed his hair. And Barbara was so beautiful and very European. She was European. She was German. She was like a princess. And they were, you know, they were very, very different than people now. I have to say, of all the concerts that I've been to and that you've been to, that we've been to together, Kenny Chesney does like the best show that I've ever seen. And he is mesmerizing mesmerizing and I don't think he studied with anybody or took you know lessons from a choreographer or anything I think Kenny really set a whole different standard with the stadium shows and and his live show and you know we were there at the beginning when Kenny first started out and um, we always laughed about the fact that Kenny Chesney was the hardest working guy in, in town because he was so uh, devoted and persistent about what he was going to do in music. and You would go to somebody's office, like the head of promotion, Tom Baldriga, and it would go, hi, this is Tom Baldriga, only it was Kenny answering the phone. And Kenny did that with everybody, and he was really sweet. And I never knew that he had that power on stage until we went to see him at some of his stadium shows. And when you see 60 or 70,000 people that know every word to his songs, you can't believe it. And he works so hard on stage. He gives such a great show, such high energy, such, you know, passion. And, you know, and he's evolved in a strange way into a really handsome sex symbol. He's you know? a sex and, symbol and, now. He's like the Frank Sinatra of country music. He really is. His voice sounds phenomenal. And I don't mean to, you know, wax on and on about Kenny, but he's the one that I've, and I've seen all the shows and so is Evelyn. He, now, he's not like, for instance, a John Prine or a John Hyatt or a Lyle Lovett that do really quirky but fantastic shows. He's a person that appeals to the whole audience. He is an entertainer. Kenny is definitely the consummate entertainer. And I just think he should win Entertainer of the Year every year. Now, Garth is an entertainer, too. You know, Ben, and, you know, I, I think it's great when people 
you know, are entertainers and do these kind of massive big shows. But I fear that, you know, a lot of stuff gets lost in the shuffle of the big shows. I mean, when you see an artist come up in a small intimate room and, you know, maybe just take a guitar and be able to mesmerize, you know, a few thousand people, I think it creates a really strong bond between the fan and the artist that you get when you actually you know, feel like he's looking at, right at you in the audience. So you know, there's a connection that I don't know that you get in these these big, huge Stadium shows, shows. But I think that in the case of Kenny and, and all these acts, I'm sure, you know, their fan base went to those smaller shows and grew up with them. And, you know, now the stadium shows are the big, huge payoff of a celebration of what they've all sort of achieved. But, you know, like when <clears throat> Randy Travis was coming up, you know, he was one of those guys that just stood at the mic and sang. And, uh, you know, he played, you know, big shows, you know, huge numbers for the time. People hadn't started really playing stadiums And Ricky Van did the same thing. And, uh, you know, the girls went crazy over Randy. And he was, you know, considered a real sex symbol. He, I think of the newer generation of artists, you know, after the Willie and the Whalens and the Johnnies, when Randy came on the scene, he, you know, was a workout fanatic. So he had a great body and, you know, people showed that off in photo spreads and stuff. And I think that it put that whole emphasis on physical appearances that didn't quite exist during that period between the Johnny Cashes and the Randy Travises, like say, um, Earl Thomas, Thomas Conley. Conley, you know, those, that whole era of artists that existed, you know, I guess Johnny Anderson would go into that and uh, Dan Seals and people like that. Uh, and then Ricky Van Shelton, who I think had one of the greatest voices ever to... Uh, he did. To Unique. sing country music. Virginian. Yeah, he had that strange accent. And, you know, I always thought that Ricky Van was really handsome on stage. He was. I'm trying to think. Then and then Dwight Yoakam, I thought, was great with his tight little ass pants. And, and he started the whole kind of moving back on stage. Bakersfield. You know, with his whole, you know, twisting and um, all of that. Yeah, he doesn't get enough credit because he really helped to turn country music around. And he also became an actor. Probably and he the put the cool factor into country music because Randy wasn't cool and Ricky Van wasn't cool. I Dwight mean, they were just cool. great singers, and then Dwight was really cool. But also at that time was Steve Earle, who was very sexy at the time. And, and very, very cool, kind of and a great writer. Outlawish, and he had that whole rock and roll element going. That first album was one of the greatest albums. What was that called? I can't um, remember his first album. Yeah, Guitar Town. That was fantastic. And I don't know what's happened to him, but I know that he was pretty great at the time. Well, I think he's still great, you know, as we all kind of age, our looks change, but uh, he was very sexy back in those days. And, I, and you know, from all the, the interviews he's done since those days, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, he had a hard time with all that going on. I know, but, you know, Johnny Cash's looks really didn't change, and he stayed sexy till the end, as did Waylon, even though he lost a part of his leg, as has Christopherson. As has Willie, in my opinion. Yeah, it is genetics. But then, who else was part of that? Alan Jackson. Oh yeah, Alan looked great too on stage when he first came along. You know, he had on the, those old kind of Hank Williams suits, and uh, I love that kind of off-white 
uh, cream colored suit that he too. used to wear. And um, he was a phenomenal writer. Truthfully, he was probably the best writer of his generation. He wrote those unbelievable songs. Uh, what was that song he wrote about 9-11? Where Were You? Where Were You? That was an earth-shattering song. And when he played it at the Grammys, it was big, big, big. And then he did the other one about uh, Denise and him. But I can't think, you know, and, and Travis Tripp was of that generation. Yeah, Travis was one of the smartest stars I ever dealt with. I started working with him when he got his first single out. Um, <clears throat> Here's a quarter. And he was living uh, outside of Atlanta, but, you know, obviously he was in town a lot, you know, at the beginning of his career. And he would come in my office and he'd have his uh, file facts. What did they call that? File facts. File facts books. And he was so, um, you know, determined to be successful. And he was going to do everything in his power to make like that Kenny, happen. But in a like, different way. Like Kenny. And he'd sit there, you know, at the other end of my office and make phone calls, like for hours, to radio stations and press people and, you know, talking it up. And, and he had a great voice. And when he did all those songs about the, uh, the Vietnam vets... He was really on to something then. It was really moving. And the first time I heard whatever that song was, I remember crying. I remember Nancy Russell played it for me in her car. And I remember crying when I heard it because he was just such a moving writer. And he's such a great singer. He really doesn't get the credit, I think, that no, he deserves. No, I don't think he does either. He had one of the most soulful voices. And there was an album project that was done uh, years ago for MCA called um, Rhythm and Country Blues. And it was duets between country artists and blues artists. But really monumental ones. And who did Travis cut with? Mavis Staples. Mavis Staples. And, and who did George cut with? B.B. Uh, King. King. And George cut Patches. Patches. Which, which was one of my favorite songs I ever heard when George and B.B. cut Patches. I think Tony Brown did that album, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, It was a brilliant, brilliant album. It was a great album. album. Really, yeah, really, really brilliant album. album. And I'm trying to think who... But Travis's cut on that album was one of the best, him and Mavis, because, you know, Travis could hold his own with any blues artist and, you know, go the distance. Uh, he was, you know, Travis was a smart artist. He was a really good artist. He really kind of created a whole look... That he went with the with fringe the, the and the fringe long hair and, and Ken Reagan as his manager and and Ken also managed uh Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Now there's another guy we haven't talked about much. Kenny was a huge artist. I think Kenny's downfall was when he had that one eight hundred sex line. Do you remember that? <laughs> Kenny had that one eight hundred sex line that he had women calling up that wanted to have sex with him. I think that's what it was. He was on Larry King talking about it. But when he and Dolly sang Islands in the Stream, and when he sang Lady, it was really great. Whenever Susan and I would go on vacation to some uh, Caribbean island, that's all you'd ever hear in the cabs was Islands in the Stream. And also, they all listened to Kenny Rogers, like in St. Lucia or Jamaica. You'd hear Kenny Rogers all the time. And he has one of those recognizable voices. He wasn't like a uh, Johnny Cash or a Willie or any of that, but he had his own place. I'm trying to think who else was in that group. Well, Clint Black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we're, touch But we're talking about the guys. We I know, but I... A little more meat. We'll talk about George a little bit because, you know, as a person... 
he was different than he was as an artist. And, you know, everybody knows that he was, you know, the greatest voice in country music, I guess we can all sort of... Arguably. 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 That was a line I used all the time for press. Arguably the greatest singer in country music. And Frank Sinatra said there's two great voices in the world. The other one is George Jones. But... You know, George was was an interesting person as well as as an artist because he, you know, he, he had a limited kind of education and uh, sophistication level, to put it mildly. But he he was a good old guy most of the time. You know, he had some weird beliefs, and the thing that people I don't think realize is that George had success so young. You know, his first single was a big hit, and then he had a hit every year for at least 50 years. So he always had kind of a... Um, a fan base. Well, he had kind of a uh, special life. You know, if you're a star from the time you're like 20 years old and, you know, you have a career that goes on for like 55 years, you really have no sense of n normalcy. And George had some strange ideas, you know, like his idea of making a lot of money for everybody other than him was, hell, if you made $500 a week, you could retire on that and just, you know, that was a lot of money in his mind, $2,000, you know, a month. And yet if he didn't make a hundred grand a night, he would be wild. Yeah, you know, and he, of course, you know, had a new car every two or three months and, you know, flew in private planes always. He tried to justify the private planes was that he was he had he was still smoking when they banned smoking on commercial planes, so he had to. But then, meanwhile, he had stopped smoking shortly thereafter, but continued to fly private. Well, the great story about George and his love of cars is, he wanted one of those new BMWs, and right before he died, and you know it didn't matter if he could drive the car or not, he just wanted them. So he got a new BMW at a, at a car dealership like in, I don't know, Knoxville or Louisville or something. He had the car put on the back of his bus. And they pulled the car into Nashville. Well, you can imagine that the car was absolutely ruined. But that was George. He didn't care. He wanted what he wanted, he wanted when he what wanted He wanted what he wanted it right then and there. But he could be very kind, you know. When he had the car accident, you know, that was such a shattering thing. He had just left a uh, rest area where there was a young uh, woman, you know, with a child and her tires were bald and he gave her a few hundred dollars and told her to bu go buy new tires. So he could be that way, but yet he would think that if you made $500 a week, you were overpaid. And he also kind of had this weird philosophy that... Um, and he had been, you know, so screwed in his business life and career uh, that you should change all the people around you every seven years because they become too familiar. They might. Well, he start was screwed. All the managers that he had with the weird names like Shorty Lavender and all these weird people, they all screwed him. They did, and he, you know, he didn't even he didn't know about business, and none of these artists knew about business. They were much like the black artists, like BB King and Bobby Blue Bland. They didn't know about business, so they got screwed too. Etta James, none of them knew oh, about yeah, the business. Country, the old country artists really, you know, got screwed, and particularly when it was back in the time of uh, you know records, 
And they would have all these, you know, bootleggers and different people hitting up all the truck stops and, you know, record stores across America and, and never pay the artist, you know, a penny. Uh, all of those things happened and George was very distrustful of a lot of people. But he was a very sweet man in a lot of different ways. He was. You know, he would come to the office almost, you know, at least three times a week, four times a week, just... For no reason, just to drive by and just to us. check in to make sure we won't embezzle sure his we money. <laughs> to make sure we weren't smoking, you know, we'd be running around with the can of ozone trying to, you know, make We the, never uh, mentioned marijuana around George. No, because you never wanted to bring up any kind of, you know, vicey thing like alcohol. We never drank when we went to dinner with uh, George. And we and never Nancy. drank anyhow, so it wasn't like no, a big was, thing. But, you know, it just seemed not right in front of a drug addict and an alcoholic to, you know, smoke pot or, or drink. Remember when Harry, what's his name? Oh, Harry uh, Connick. Harry Connick came here and he wanted to record with George. Well, George had never heard of him. So we had to run out and get a TV movie that Harry Connick was in was the only way he knew who he was. He had never heard of him. And Harry wanted to record a Christmas song with him. And he rented a piano, didn't he? And had it well, brought no. to his hotel we had, room. We had a dinner and he played, you know, some of the song for George. And, you know, George was pretty much a purist in that he did things the way he wanted to musically when he was sober. When he was drunk, that's another story. But when he was sober... You know, and he kind of would would suck on like a tooth thing, you know, where he'd right. make this kind of noise. And you knew he wasn't happy with whatever was being <laughs> he uh, was like that suggested. <laughs> he would start sucking away. <laughs> and finally, he he said to Harry that, you know, they, that the song wasn't right. The melody wasn't right for a country singer to sing this song. It was like too complex and it should be this way. So Harry Connick, you know, was going to rewrite it that night. So he was staying at the Vanderbilt Plaza Hotel and he had them, he ordered a piano brought to his room <laughs> so that he could rewrite the whole song. He rewrote song. the whole song and George never cut it anyhow. No, did they it. did cut it. Did they cut yeah, it? Yeah, they did cut it, yeah. For what? For, it was a Harry Connick project. I never heard it. But Harry sang it with him on the TV show, didn't he? What they sang Harry's a different song. They didn't sing a Christmas song on that. I don't know, but George was so funny, he had no idea who Harry Connick was. He didn't know who a lot of people were. And a lot of country artists don't know because they're not involved in major media. And George was very, very shy and he felt... Sheltered. And he felt, you know, intimidated by um, the pop world or, you know, the movie star world or whatever. You know, even, you know, when he would get, you know, acclaim at uh, different Washington events, whether it was the Kennedy Center or the President's Medal, he wouldn't want to go. He didn't want to go to the Kennedy Center honor. He wanted to leave early. That was his Well, thing. and that was the other thing. Other things that we had gone to, like when he got the President's Medal, he didn't want to wear it. He thought it was, you know, too kind of... Showy. Showy, you know, to wear around the reception. And, you know... I'm there carrying the metal behind him, trying to say he's the one who got it. And you know, he was really, I mean, no and matter- the Kennedy Center thing, he just said he wouldn't go, you know, that he, he just, and you know, it was ridiculous. And we had to we offer had to pay to, for the we plane. We had to pay for the private plane. And, and pay for his hairdresser who went everywhere with him. And Mackie. pick up all the hotel bills and, and do everything so that he could be honored. And no matter what it, we say about Nancy or whatever went down, Nancy kept him sheltered from everything. 
He never heard nary a bad word. If anybody said a bad word about him, Nancy never let him know. Well, he, you know, and he had a great life with Nancy. You know, he, you know, would just get, you know, a bug up his ass about something and decide that he had to have this. Like he went through a period where he wanted little tiny miniature horses. (laughs) 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 And they bought all these little tiny horses. And then he got wagons for them to pull and all kinds of, you know, accoutrements for the pony world. And I think that's when the grandkids were really young and he thought that all this made sense. And they had all these little uh, ponies running around. They were really cute. And then he got like the biggest horse in the world. (laughs) And he had them running around. and And he was always on his mower. The minute anybody came to the house that he didn't like, he would jump on that god dang mower and be off down the property and you would never see him. People would say, well, I came here to see George. I have an appointment. Too bad. He's gone. And they had such a beautiful piece of property out in Franklin. And that was because George like manicured this place and the fencing and the roads and the bridges. And then when uh, Reba first built Starstruck on uh, Music Row, he drove by there and saw those bronze horses. And then he took a fancy <laughs> that he had to have bronzes. And right at that time, <clears throat> there, was a, there was a bronze company that was out going of out of business. <clears throat> and George was on the road, but his birthday was coming up and we were going to get him a birthday present there, you know, get some kind of bronze thing. And then the prices were really pretty good. So we called him and didn't tell him that we were getting him one, but we called him about this bronze sale and he said to buy him a bunch of stuff. And we did. And we did. So we bought horses and children on swings. And people carrying baskets and all kinds of bronze things. And I personally ended up with three giant bronze things. I have a cheetah, an elephant, and a, um, a cheetah, an elephant, and a giraffe. But the thing is, when you're with George and you get into this, you get caught up in his passion for stuff. Uh, you know, if I had been there during the little horse thing, I would have bought a little horse. And, you know, you end up buying, you know, he goes shopping and he gets, you know, clothes with fringe. You end up buying thousands of dollars of fringed outfits because of George. You know, when they came out with those sneakers with the lights and the uh, thing? <laughs> well, he saw them first out of town before they were plentiful. And he bought like hundreds of pairs of these tennis shoes. <laughs> he bought a store all, that was closing. He bought them in all these different sizes and he was going to sell them. You know, he got this thing in his brain that he was going to make all this money off of selling these, these tennis shoes that lit up. He bought the store that was going out of business and he used to wear clothes. He wore his pants were called Sansa belt. And that means they didn't have a belt. So all of his pants had no belts because, you know, he was a little round in the belly. And so, and then he got Sanzibel jeans and then he got Sanzibel shorts. I never saw so much stuff. He was a, a major acquirer. Yeah, he was a big shopper. And, you know, and, and because if he wasn't working, which he basically worked weekends, he, was he would have all this time during the week. But he was not a procrastinator. He didn't like laying around and doing nothing. And they would get up early, they would get dressed, they would go out, you know, them being him and Nancy, and they would go to breakfast. breakfast, And then, you know, that would start their day and off they'd go to our office just to give us a little grief. Then they'd go out to the mall. Every day they went to the Cool Springs Mall and he would buy a hat 
every single day <laughs> in this hat store that he felt bad for the guy that he wasn't doing that much business. So George would go in there every day and buy a baseball hat. Where he buys clothes, McPherson's. That's where he got all the Sanzibel stuff. <laughs> and I'd never heard that term before, being from Pittsburgh. I'd never heard of Sanzibel. And I didn't know, I thought it was like a place. Oh, he's buying clothes from Sanzibel. But he was really funny. He and Nancy were really funny. And there were a lot of years there where we were close to them. And they were, you know. Oh, and they'd be sweet. They'd bring us like a, a gold-dipped rose, you know. Or, you know, we, we had a bet going that if we could get his album to go uh, gold, that he would uh, buy, buy us cars. cars. But he never did. And we got the album to go platinum. Yeah, but he uh, managed to wiggle out of that. And he knew what he was wiggling out of one time when we didn't have any money and we were trying to get the, the label started. We were out at Cool Springs at that restaurant called the Sapphire. Sapphire. <laughs> and so we were having dinner and we thought, look, what can it hurt just to ask him for 15 grand to invest in the label? <laughs> so I, I, you probably said it to him or I said it to him, George, we need money. We need about 15 grand. And he turned to Nancy <laughs> said, what have we gotten into, hon? <laughs> <laughs> what big mistake have we gotten into? This is a guy who would spend $150,000 every horses. other month on a new car. You know, and he was very generous. I mean, he would, you know, always take you out to dinner. They went out to dinner every, every day, night. every and night. And lunch and breakfast. And he would call everybody son and the women hon. How are you? How are you, hon? How are you doing, son? And that, were, that was his name for everybody. Oh, I, I miss George sometimes. He would come to the office and all the dogs I had would run up and lick him and lick his legs and he hated it. He was wearing shorts and he'd lick, the dogs would lick his legs. And I had a dog I named after my attorney, Joel Katz, named Jolie. And the dog would come up and lick him and he'd go, stop it, Joel, stop it. He would like kick at the dog. Well. But there's not a mention of us at the museum. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't exist. Did we? Uh, well, we've had so many funny incidents, instant incidences <laughs> with uh, Willie. Uh, Willie has a great sense of humor, and I remember one morning we were going to uh, Good Morning America or something. We were up in New York, and Willie had gotten some kind of an award from the Grammys. It was like a special award. I don't remember which award it was. For singles or something. And that led off to Susan singing constantly with Willie in the car and smoking a joint at like 6.30 in the morning. And what was it that you two were singing? I don't know, but I loved singing with Willie. I loved singing with all the artists, truthfully. But Willie was the most welcoming, Willie and Sammy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say Clint Black never asked me to sing with him. <laughs> Branson, about 20 years ago, was going to be the second Nashville. 30. Is it that long? Mm -hmm. And somehow or another, Merle Haggard did a deal to be at this theater all year long. And he somehow got Willie to agree to do half the time. So Willie was playing this place in Branson and they were building all of these theaters and not enough roads and you couldn't get anywhere. And Willie was living in a motel and to go out to get food at a restaurant would be like a four-hour process. Well, there was no hardly any restaurants in Branson back then. And it was then. so crowded. His manager, Mark, brought him a tent, 
a yeah. really cool, calm tent that he could live in in the room. He had a tent in the room, which I don't understand, but nonetheless, he did. And it, it was a strange motel. And Susan and I schlepped out to Branson, which is, you know, a whole ordeal to get there for one thing. And uh, we couldn't get anywhere because it was just constant traffic. And we ended up cooking for Willie and a bunch of the band members. and uh, On a Coleman stove, a two burner stove. Oh, we made great, you know, Willie likes eggs. Yeah, <laughs> so it was pretty easy. We made a lot of eggs. And, and I, fried potatoes. <laughs> and we cooked for Willie outside of the tent. And Willie ate in that room for months. Yeah, it was a terrible uh, situation to be in. But he didn't ever complain. No, Willie never I complains. never heard Willie complain about anything. No, and then did we talk about his birthday party down in... Uh, There's not much to talk about. It was well, a star-studded I mean, birthday. We had done Farm Aid. In Ames, Iowa, and the next day, everybody headed to Austin, where we were taping a 60th birthday party for uh, Willie, and the guest stars were just incredible. It was over a two-day period, and it was Ray Charles and Bob, Bob Dylan. Dylan. Did we talk about Ray Charles smoking the joint? Aha! Uh -huh. yeah. so, <laughs> so there were all these people, I mean, huge, huge stars. Neil Young was there. Um, he came from Farm Aid, and remember, we did the video in Willie's Western Town. Oh, Willie, right. Willie owns a Western Town that's, a t that's part of his property in Austin. They filmed a lot of movies there and stuff. Yeah, and, you know, there's a saloon and there's a bank and Willie's office is there, Armadillo uh, headquarters. Remember they had a coffee grinder that David would use to grind the pot. Yeah. So that was the first time we ever saw that, and it was so handy and nifty because that was before they had the grinders and everything. You just sort of crumbled it in your fingers, and... Uh, Willie used a coffee grinder, and <clears throat> the saloon was set up as his office, which was very cool. And um, there was a church. There were all kinds of things in this little western town. And, uh, and, you know, Willie has a lot of horses, so people ride horses there. But they were filming a video out there, and it was about 130 degrees. It was just hotter than hell. Remember how horrible yeah, I it do. was? Like it is here now. And then we, did, we taped this TV uh, special to uh, Willie. And uh, at one point we were on the bus and Willie and Ray Charles were playing chess. If you can imagine that Ray Charles played chess, did he have a special chess set so that he could play, so I, that he could I identify? So. The, yeah, uh, there was something where he knew what was on the board. I don't but know. anyhow, Willie rolled a joint for him and Ray and us. And uh, Ray was really happy. We didn't think, you know, we didn't know if Ray got high or not. I had met him at the Benson and Hedges Blues thing, but I certainly had not smoked with him. And so Willie took a hit of the joint and he passed it to Ray. And we're all sitting there waiting for it. Ray smoked the whole joint <laughs> in one inhalation. <laughs> the whole thing he smoked. <laughs> <laughs> and it was gone and Willie's eyes got big and our eyes we got big. We never got a hit. He smoked the whole thing himself and he never said a word and that was it. <laughs> Of course, Willie rolled more joints, but... Yeah, Willie did roll more <laughs> joints, but that was Ray. Let's see, Kevin Costner was there. He was... I don't know what he was doing there, but, you know, everybody's a fan of Willie's, especially anybody that's liked country music. I forget who else was there other than Bob Dylan. Well, that's the end of that story. <laughs> no, I was trying to think of who else was there. <laughs> Oh,
And now it's time for the Music City Myth. Our listeners submit questions and Evelyn and I try to answer them to the best of our ability. Here's the question. Did Elvis ever perform on the Grand Old Opry stage or did he get rejected before he went on? Well, you know, there's a lot of talk about how um, the Opry wouldn't allow Elvis on stage because of his swiveling hips. But I know for a fact that he did appear on the Opry stage to perform Blue Moon of Kentucky when he was just a teenager. But then I guess they kept him off for a long, long time. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Stay tuned next week for Country Politics where we discuss the politics of country music and also some more current events that are going on that involve country. So share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Sarah DeHilly. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Shavers. He is also our engineer and editor.